before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. How we ask that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to illumine this word to our hearts, to our spirits. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We thank you for your inerrant and infallible word. And we pray that you would cause us to treasure it as truly as we ought to. And we pray that you would cause us to feast upon it as we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, as you remember, for context, we have been moving through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has come. He's passed the temptation in the wilderness. He's been preaching the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the gospel. And then he started his Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, with the character of what Christians look like, and then said that those people who look like that with that character as they work in the world are salt and light. And then the last time we met, we spoke about the law and how Jesus said, even though the kingdom is coming and I'm bringing a new covenant, this is not getting rid of the all the old. It's not getting rid of the law. In fact, the moral law will stand forever. So we see here that he is now continuing to teach on the law to ex explicate what the law means, in particular in these verses about murder and anger. So in verse 21 and 22, he says, you have heard that it was said of old and then dot, dot, dot. And verse 22, but I say to you, well, so is this Jesus doing the exact opposite of what he had just said? He just said that the law was not going to pass away. And here he says, here's the law, but I say. So is he, is he going back on what he just said? And of course not. He, he knows what he just said. And so how does this work together? Well, there are several phrases that are used in um, Scripture. R.C. Sproul points this out. He says when Christ uses the phrase, it is written, that's him saying the Bible says. And so, for example, you had in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So when he says it is written, he's quoting Scripture. He is saying the Bible says uh, but uh, on the other hand, here he's saying, you have heard it was said of old. He is pointing to and alluding to the rabbinical tradition and what was taught about the law. And here you see that it falls short. It quotes something that's true. You are not to murder. That's true. But it doesn't go as far as it ought to go. It stops and leaves it at the superficial level. Calvin puts it this way. In saying that you have heard it was said, our Lord explains more fully by minute instances what torturous methods the Pharisees debase the law so that their righteousness is mere filth. It is a mistake, however, to suppose that it is a correction of the law. Nothing was further from Christ's design than to alter or innovate anything in the commandments of the law. There, God has once fixed the rule of life, which he will never retract. But as the law has been corrupted by false expositions and turned to a profane meaning, Christ vindicates it against such corruptions and points out its true meaning. So he is not changing the law. He is correcting the interpretations of the law. 
Notice that in, in that time, if you were teaching on something, you would quote somebody with authority. You would say, well, this famous rabbi says this, and I'm going to teach this way, and this famous rabbi says this. But Christ does not allude or point to a famous rabbi in the historical oral tradition. He says, I say. And so he is preaching with authority. Other places in the scripture, the people who are listening are amazed that he teaches with authority. Luke 4.32, for example. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. This is the Savior come to earth. This is the Messiah. This is the God-man. He has the authority to teach on his own. I say, says the God-man, the Messiah. So that is the context of, of Christ's teaching. What, what is the content of his teaching here? Well, he teaches on the, would have you to see two things this evening. One, the trichotomy of murder. The, what, what, what is the type of murder? What are the levels of murder? And there are indeed three. And then secondly, the remedy or prevention of this murderous anger and rage. So to the first point, this trichotomy of murder. We see in verse 21 that while the rabbis were right in saying that you ought not to murder, it was insufficient and in that it just stopped there. It did not go on. So the notion was, as long as you haven't committed murder in the first degree, you're good. You can have clenched teeth and be so rageful about a person and be full of anger and malice and be wishing they're ill. But as long as you have not murdered, you are not doing right. Was that the true uh, Old Testament teaching about how the Old Testament saints ought to have been? No. Leviticus 19, 17 through 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This has always been the requirement of God for his people. You are to love your enemy. You are not to be full of hate. Now, Christ is teaching on, on the levels of this hate, this anger, this murder. And uh, scholars of old have, have often categorized them the same way but used different words. Heinrich Bullinger, who was one of the, um, the ones that followed Zwingli in Switzerland, he taught uh, that these sins are done in thought, word, and deed. Those are the three levels that you can commit these sins on. Matthew Henry used different terms for it. He said, uh, you are a physical murderer, a speech murderer, and a heart murderer. Let's take Matthew Henry's description here. We'll, we'll go with the physical murderer first. So it is indeed true that if you do murder, you are sinning. Now, does this mean that it is never appropriate for someone's life to be taken? Is this teaching against, for example, the death penalty? Uh, well, we, let's turn to Scripture. Let's turn to Genesis 9-6. This is where we see first in Scripture that the murder is spelled out as being a sin. Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So here, where we're told why murder is wrong, why is murder wrong? It's wrong because you are built, you are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. So when you murder someone, you are harming the image of God. You are defaming the image of God. It is not allowed. And in this same verse where we learn why murder is wrong, we see 
that because it is so wrong to murder, there must be capital punishment. It is guaranteed here saying that because life is so precious, because the life of the person who was slain is so precious, there is punishment on the one who took it that other people will not fall and fail. So it's actually the reverse of what many would think. You think, well, I value life so much that I'm not going to want there to be executions by the government. And yet what that belies is a devaluing of life. We see in Romans 13:4 that God has indeed given the power of the sword to the government. Romans 13:4 says, for he, the government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out the God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we are not talking about vigilante justice where you go out and you correct and you take the life of someone who deserves it. It is a government that is acting on God's behalf that is punishing evildoers, staying the wickedness that murder would not spread. So here we see what we all knew before, actual murder, murdering somebody is wrong and ought not to be done. And it is a sin. Even the Pharisees acknowledged that there is no argument there. But then we move to the next level. We see that Christ is speaking of speech murder. You know, these words that are used in this text, one is raka, and there are other ones where it talks about you fool or stupid. There's different um, commentators will say different things about it. Some say that there is a differing level of that, that the first one that is used is uh, just saying someone is stupid, meaning they're making a mistake intellectually. They're not smart intellectually, and there's no moral component attached to it. And yet the one that follows, you fool, that has moral condemnation. That is a person that is wicked against God. A, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Proverbs 9, 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so to say someone is a fool would carry some moral component to it. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. I'll leave for you to think with the commentators on that. The point being, you are not to have a heart that is full of hate and rage towards somebody that words spill out of it. John MacArthur speaks of it this way. We, we may not know what these words raka mean in their Old Testament or in their Bible context, but you all have heard it when you've accidentally cut off a car in traffic and they rolled down their window and a word came out at you. That is a word like raka. That is a word of insult meant towards you. And sometimes it is not a word, but a gesture. These are what is coming out of the body full of rage and hate and, and enmity towards a person. Is this what is supposed to be characterizing a Christian's demeanor towards others? Of course not. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as it is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
You remember, we're supposed to be salt and light in this world. Where we go with our beatitude character, the words that come out of our mouths are supposed to liven the world, bring life to the world, bring peace and reconciliation to the world. Now, make no mistake about it. Sometimes we have to speak truths, and those truths are taken by the world as as hateful or onerous, for indeed we will call sin, sin. But what's the demeanor that we have as we're doing that? It's not clenched teeth, joyfully calling somebody or relishing, not joyfully, relishing in your hateful comment towards somebody. You're this and that. That's not the demeanor. It is with a broken heart saying this is the reality. This is what it looks like. And I wish that you did not turn this way or do this thing of wickedness. So our speech, we are not to commit speech murder. We are not to commit these hateful statements that come out of our mouths. Let's take just for example, like why would this be a bad thing? Let's take for example, let's say you were wanting to insult a person because of their looks. Surely none of us have ever done that in this room, but maybe when you were in middle school, you knew somebody that did something like this, insulted somebody because of their looks. What does it mean when you're insulting somebody because of their looks? Well, who made that person? Who gave them the looks that they have? Who are you really insulting when you're insulting somebody because of their looks or something of the kind? Remember, these people are made in the image of God. We are not to curse our God's workmanship. We are not to do these sort of things. So speech murder is a heinous thing, and we ought not to do it. Now, on to the third level, heart murder. Now, it's at this point that many people uh, don't like this level of it. Christopher Hitchens was a famous atheist before he died, and he would debate people, and he would call God a tyrannical despot who would even do thought crimes. He would punish you for things that you think. And what a, what a uh, dictator this is that even punishes us for this kind of thought. But here's the question, I wonder... Where do the actions of murder that we just all agreed were wrong, where do those come from? They just happen? No, they, they come from inside. They come from the heart. Where does the language that spills out of people when they're in rage in a car, where does that come from? It comes from, it comes from the heart. And so, of course, God must deal with the heart of the issue. Of course, God must deal with our hearts. Of course, he must take it to this level. Jerry Bridges, in his uh, book, Respectable Sins, speaks about many sins that, uh, you know, they're the sins that everybody can agree that are really, really bad. Murder and all the things that are visible, but the ones that... Typical churchgoers don't really commit. Those are the ones we can all agree to harp on. Let's be mad about those. But then the sins that we are more likely to commit, gluttony or hatred or gossip or things like that, those are the more respectable ones. We don't harp on those as much. And yet this heart concept of anger towards somebody and hatred towards people, this is a vile thing in God's eyes. Let's turn once more to Calvin. Those again who break out into reproaches and are adjudged to the hell of fire, which implies that hatred and everything that is contrary to love is enough to expose them to eternal death, though they have committed no acts of violence. 
And so what Calvin is pointing out to us here is we can see the vileness of this sin of you might hear a person on this planet just say, it's just a thought. You're just thinking it. It's not that bad. And yet Calvin points out, look at what the punishment is and you'll see the value of how evil it really is. It is so vile that its punishment is hellfire. That is a wicked thing. We must recalibrate our levels instead of thinking, well, it's just a thought. You know, it's just a thing that went through my mind. I'm not going to be so concerned about it. No, this is how evil it is, that it must be punished with hell fire. I've mentioned it before, but the Puritan Ralph Vinning, he wrote that book, The Sinfulness of Sin. We must elevate our concept of how wicked even the smallest sin is. We don't want to be comfortable with sin. We don't want these hateful thoughts, these thoughts of anger to be in our heart. Now, as we are moving from this first point of the trichotomy of, of murder, it's physical murder, speech murder, and heart murder that we commit all in ourselves here. We were not wanting to miss an exegetical lesson from our Savior. What is exegesis? Exegesis is interpreting a text, and you want to interpret it correctly. It's under the broad category of hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation. What principles will you use when you're interpreting the text? And people disagree on this or that principle. But exegesis is reading in, reading the scriptures and getting out of the scripture what the author meant for you to get out from it. Exodus was what? The people of Israel leaving uh, Egypt. Exegesis is reading out of Scripture what the author intended. There is a different kind of uh, interpretation called eisegesis. And this is where you read into Scripture your own interpretations and presuppositions, and you read into it what you would like it to say. We must never fall into eisegesis, but stick with exegesis, taking out from Scripture what Scripture would have us to do. And so what was Jesus' method of interpretation here? It is true that of the, in the Ten Commandments it said, Thou shalt not murder. And so where did all this other stuff come from? Where did he get it? Where do we see this from the Scriptures? Well, we're learning from our Savior how you are rightly to interpret Scripture, how you're rightly to interpret the laws. R.C. Sproul puts it this way as far as his principle, Christ's principle of interpreting the law. Whatever the law prohibits, it at the same time enjoins its opposite. And whatever the law enjoins, it at the same time prohibits its opposite. So we're taking, for example, the command on do not murder. We are told here all these extra things. Well, you're not just not to physically murder. You're not to hate them on the, in the heart. You are not to say things against them. How do those two things fit with that murdering in the heart? Well, in summary, it could look something like this. Do not do anything that brings damage to a person's life. Not their name. You're not bringing damage to their name out in the world. You're not speaking murder against their name. You are not speaking image. I mean, you are not speaking against or hurting their image in your heart. You're not murdering their image when you're thinking hateful thoughts in your heart against them. And you're not, of course, physically hurting them outside. So in one law, all of this is folded in. It enjoins all of these extra things. 
one of the best places where the law is folded for us, is opened up to us and explicated using Christ's method of exegesis here is our Westminster Standards. The Westminster Standards in the longer catechism and shorter chasm do a great job on every one of the Ten Commandments of saying when it says that you may not murder, here are all the things that are encompassed by that. And so it helps us as Christians to meditate on the law and to repent. So in your quiet time, you could open up to these Westminster Catechism questions and read through them and see where you have fallen short. And it helps your repentance towards God in your devotional time. I'm going to read question 135 and 136, which deals with murder. And you can see what I mean about the Westminster divines bringing out all of these duties. So question 135 is the duties required. And question 136 then is the sins that are forbidden. Remember what Sproul said about it requiring something and forbidding the opposite. The duties are required in the sixth commandment are... All careful studies, all lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts, purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions and temptations and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of the life of any. But by just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat and drink and physic and sleep and labor and recreations, by charitable thoughts of love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable mind and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing and forgiving injuries and requiring good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. Those were all duties required. And now I'll read for you the sins forbidden by the sixth commandment. The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away of life of ourselves or of others, except in the case of public justice or lawful war or the necessary defense, the neglecting or withdrawing of the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. And so you see there was so much there that that might be a helpful, fruitful thing for you to meditate on piece by piece. And how does that part relate to murder? That might have been, as I was reading that, you might have thought, well, how does that relate? That might be a useful devotional time to figure where is the relation of how does uh, the judicious use of meat and drink, how does that tie to murder? Where is that connected? There are many studies on the Westminster Standards that can help you as you're digging through that sort of thing, but it is a, a fruitful study. I can guarantee that. Uh, just one important side note here. Uh, Matthew fifteen nineteen says, Out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and all sins and wickedness. So we do not want these things to fester in our hearts. Another quick side note. Uh, Christ is not saying here that all three of these are equal or they're all equally punishable in the same way. Obviously, a thought is not punishable in the same way that an act is the act is worse than the thought is. 
And yet the point here being you are not innocent just because you don't do the act. That was the thought of the Pharisees. Well, we didn't do the act, so we're innocent. And they would use the law, their righteousness. The, they would point to the law and said, we have not murdered. And so they would puff themselves up, see how good we are. They lowered the standard of the law to use it to make themselves feel righteous. And that's obviously not the point of the law here. It is to show what God's good rule is. And it humbles us. We look at it and we see how wretched we are. And that points us to the cross. And so here he is not saying they are all equally bad, but that none of them is without judgment and guilt. Finally, uh, on that note, just one other, there is, it is not the case that all anger is sinful. You know, there is anger that is righteous anger. There's scripture that says, be angry and do not sin. That would be a fruitful discussion for us, but obviously in one sermon you cannot cover all of it. So we are speaking of the sinful anger here. We are speaking of the type of anger that you are having in your heart, not because of wickedness in the world, wickedness against God, but because somebody has upset you and you're pretending to be the, on the throne and you don't like it when somebody upsets you. And that's why you're angry, because your world has been upturned, not God and his glory and his righteousness. That is not your main concern. Now, quickly, as we look at the last verses, 23 through 26, we're looking to, towards murder's remedy and prevention. How do we remedy this heart murder, this speech murder? How do we prevent these things? And God makes clear one it is urgent that you do so. Notice he said, if you are even in worship, if you're in worship and you are offering to God, you stop and you go. You go and you fix it. There is urgency there. There's none of this. Well, if the opportunity presents itself and, you know, if, if it happens that it's convenient and that we bump in, then we'll do it. No, as there is urgency here. God cares significantly about this. He would that he wills that people will be reconciled. There is urgency. Notice that in this situation, you are the offending party. If someone has something against you, you're the one that has, that has said something inappropriate. You're the one that has done ill. You are the offending party. You are to go and reconcile. The attitude of the heart is more important than the sacrifice that is being given. So 1 Samuel 15:22 says, As Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in the obeying of the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen to the fat of the rams. So the point here, God loves the heart and the intentions of the heart more than he loves just showing up to worship. Just showing up is not the thing that he is concerned with. It's the attitudes of the heart. Does this teaching seem very hard to you? That you are to go and be the reconciler, that you are one to be perfect, that you're never to have a hateful thought in your heart, that you're never to say anything that's inappropriate towards someone. And when you do, you are to go and reconcile. Does this seem onerous? Well, it does to me. And it kind of seems like we need a savior because we have such a hard time doing this. And of course, this is what the law pushes us towards. 
Dear one, you do need to reconcile with those with whom you have caused offense. And if you are so proud in your heart like you just can't bring yourself to do it, the thought of it just makes you recoil. Then you pray that Jim Boyce was big on this and in his um, interpretation of the scripture. You pray to your God that he would change your heart. You get on your knees and you pour your heart out to God and say, this is what my heart is now. Please change it that I would do that. I would seek justice and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation, that that would be the way that my heart works instead of clenching on to not letting go. Well, if they hadn't done that first, then I wouldn't have done my thing. So they've got to forgive give first or they've got to apologize first Christ says if someone has something against you you go and reconcile as far as it is with you you make it better as 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 far as you can this is something that is so hard for us the last and final thing hatred do you know a Bible verse that says God is hate? No, you know the Bible verse that says God is love. Of course, he has wrath towards sin. He does judge. He does all these things. But your God is a loving God who saw that you were in need of redemption and sent his son to die on the cross. This God, he's the loving God. Why would we want to harbor hatred in our hearts, which is at an antithesis with love, which is who God is? We want to be like our God. Make no peace with evil and hatred. Revelation 22, 1 and 2 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. God is life and light and love. Bright with crystal and flowing from the throne of the God of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city and on either side the tree of life. I want you to think of what God is requiring from people. He's requiring this no hatred, this no ill speaking, this no murder. Can you imagine a world where everybody did what this text required? It's hard to imagine it. Of course, this world will never be like that because it's filled with sinners who do break the law. But if you, all of us have people that have died and in Christ and have gone ahead into glory and they have been enjoying a world without any hatred or murder or strife. They're already enjoying this, this tree of life and this river of life that flows from the throne of God, this perfect God. We are supposed to be kingdom people here, bringing that reality down here, being this sort of non-hateful Christians who love to reconcile with others. Oh, Christian, we cannot do it perfectly. We must go to our Savior every moment of every day. We must cling to him. And I must mention before we pray You are to be reconciled with other people. You are to be reconciled with those that you have offended. But even more so, you are to be reconciled to your God. You are to be reconciled to all that you have offended. Have you offended your God? Well, all sinners have. Every time we sin, we do. And so we must constantly repent and believe. So if there's any in this room who have not repented and found reconciliation with Christ, you must do so now. You must repent now. That is the most important reconciliation that you can have. And of course, he is always willing to accept and believe and accept and forgive those who do repent and believe in him.
What a good God. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your teaching. We thank you that you have given us a high standard, a perfect standard. We are sorry that we are so miserable and never meet that standard. But we pray that you would give us grace to be the type of people that are forgiving, that will seek to be reconciled towards people. Help us to not have hearts of hatred and evil. Help us not to commit murder in any form, physical murder, speech murder, or heart murder. Oh, Heavenly Father, purify us. We know that we are not perfect, and so we thank you that we are about to be able to come to the table where we can have forgiveness in you. We thank you that you did find reconciliation with us, that you provided a way. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this service this evening. Help it to change us as we go from this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.